Decentering the Marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? It's great. Do you know what day it is today? New Year's, but I know you know something that I don't, so what day is it, Derek? Yes, it is also Circumcision Day. It's a week after Christmas, eight days inclusive. Luke records that um, this is the day that Jesus was circumcised and named. So there is that. Okay. And it is also the last day of Kwanzaa. So happy Kwanzaa. Yes, happy Kwanzaa. Last day of Kwanzaa. I I really like how I'm seeing, at least more in these recent years, people actually embracing uh, Kwanzaa. I I don't think... Well, just more things in the black diaspora in general. Like Juneteenth mm-hmm. is definitely one of those things that I see more people celebrating. And uh, now Kwanzaa, one of them as well, and embracing it for the very reasons Kwanzaa was implemented in the first place, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, we talked about a little bit last week. But, you know, Kwanzaa as a celebration of us held in distinction or rather against uh, the religion of the oppressor. So Kwanzaa. And seeing more of uh, you know my black queer my black siblings embracing that has been uh, quite an experience. Uh, knowing more people that mm-hmm. know the proper response to Habari Ghani has been quite great. So it's a good time. It's a good time to know Kwanzaa and to learn about Kwanzaa if you haven't done that already. But uh, yeah, there's a lot that I need to learn. Uh, but yeah, don't we all? That is that is what yeah. life is for. So Derek. We- this is also very yeah. exciting. Um, we're in a new unit. And last year we talked about the Pearl of Great Price, but this is our first time this year, or first time since we started the prod- podcast, talking about the Hebrew Bible, talking about Genesis. And uh, mm-hmm. I am quite excited for that experience because, you know, I, I don't know. Um mm-hmm. What's a good way to say this? The Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible, is one of the most misunderstood and abused books of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so excited to go in there and read this book, um, you know, in a better way. Now, I I, kind of want to put this out there for the people. I, um, I, I think I'm speaking for us both when I say this. Correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, but we are not going to read the Bible objectively. You understand? Right. Okay. Because we never actually read the Bible objectively. We've never read the Old Testament objectively. This is a very American book, a very Western civilization book is probably better. It has played a very problematic role in imperial domination, colonization, Mm -hmm. war making, racialization, conquesting dehumanizing women, gender norms, queer phobia, like what we're about to dive into is essentially one of the, it's certainly the first weapon of this kind of oppression, uh, at the very least racialized oppression. And it's one of the Mm -hmm. uh, most effective weapons of uh, this kind of oppression. So I'm excited to read the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament because we get an opportunity to uh, rehabilitate and reclaim the Bible. We, we get an opportunity to read, to correct the misreadings, or at the very least, read it better. Right. Like we're, we're shaped by these, by these misreadings after all. So that's why we got to, that's why I'm excited to read this book. That's why we got to read it carefully and read it 
uh, differently than what Western religions have been conditioned to uh, teach us. So I, I'm I'm really excited mm-hmm. to, especially with you, Derek, to a a resistant, a restorative, a rehabilitative, a reconciliatory, a reclaiming reading of uh, the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament. So, uh, yeah. Like, I wish we had more time. I have a whole bunch of other stuff I want to say, so we're going to have to uh, delay this. Uh, there's a. I would love to do, like, a unit on how to approach the Hebrew Bible responsibly and how to, like, all this stuff that you should know beforehand, but I don't have time to cover that. Uh, so we're going to have to cover that at some point. At some point. But the one thing I do want to say is a big key for Christians reading the Hebrew Bible is to read it knowing that this is not exclusive to us. This is the historical and contemporary book of the Jewish people who uh, authored it, collected it, preserved it. And in a sense, this isn't even our book. We we appropriated it in a way. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be very sensitive to anti-Semitism. We have to learn the history of Christian anti-Semitism. We have to learn that a lot of the misreadings of the Hebrew Bible are actually Christian misreadings and never were part of the rabbinic tradition. And so big lo- there's a big mess here that we have to, to name. Yeah. And I can't go into it too much, but I think that uh, reading it in dialogue with Jewish sources, reading Jewish translations of the Hebrew Bible, such as Robert Alter's masterful scholarly and poetic translation. There's also the New Jewish Publication Society translation. It, I, th- I think it's important for Christians to read translations of the Bible by Jewish translators because there's a lot of bias that goes into Christian translations of the Bible. Right. Even I notice, like, I'm going to, like, see Christ in the text of the Hebrew Bible, and that's okay within the context of a of a framework that that's appropriate to say that like I am likening the scriptures unto myself mm-hmm. rather than to say well this is objectively what it meant to the ancient Israelites which which it didn't it did not mean that to them um, and it doesn't mean that to Jews today so we have to keep that all in mind when we do this and my Jewish friends have asked me not to use the phrase Old Testament uh, so I will say Hebrew Bible or Tanakh or just Bible uh, because Old Testament implies, well, we've got a newer and better one that trumped it, and we don't want any trumping, right? So <laughs> I think letting the Hebrew Bible speak on its own terms as much as we can is necessary to actually understand it correctly, because if you put an anachronistic uh, constructs on it and, and read back into it stuff that never was there— you're distorting the text, and you are depriving uh, us of this sense of line-upon-line progressive revelation. Like, not everything of our doctrine is revealed in the Hebrew Bible, and so we shouldn't read it back in there. Right. And so that's kind of, oh, I'm I'm rambling on about the thing that I said I didn't have time for. Nah, so maybe we should good. just get into the text. Yeah. And this is, we get the uh, creation narrative. We have the creation of... Of everything, we even have the creation of baseball. Did you notice this in the text? Oh my gosh, Derek, where are you about to go with this? It starts out by saying, "In the big inning." Oh man, 
You know, it's not even that early, but it's somehow too early for this nonsense, Derek. Too early. It ain't even well, that early, but it's too early. Well, just keep all the readers should keep that as a lesson not to read into the text stuff that isn't there, like baseball. Yeah, you might torture James, so, and we don't want that. So. <laughs> That's half the fun of this podcast. I know. Like, I don't know why I just. I wish I was tougher, Derek. I wish I was tougher. Whoops. <laughs> well, hopefully it will will build resilience. Yes, build resilience. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of which, before we go ahead and uh, dive into the text, uh, let me just read this spot right quick. want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we mm-hmm. are going to start um, in the book of Genesis. Like for the Come Follow Me, we are in Genesis. We are in Abraham. We are in Moses. Uh, I, I won't speak for Derek, but I'm primarily going to be focusing on uh, the Genesis story because I just think that is so important to focus on uh for the following for the following reasons um now before we even get into this the creation story i want folks to understand the context it was written in it was certainly not the first creation story ever told the uh the dominant one at the time that it was written and perhaps the oldest creation story was the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian creation myth, spelled E-N-U-M-A-E-L-I-S-H. Two words. Basically, this story, this Babylonian creation myth, is a primeval battle between gods. And that is how the world came Mm -hmm. into being. With uh, the center of the story being a hero of a, a superhero god named Marduk. Uh, violence and power are central themes of this story. Uh, this uh, this super god Marduk, he brutally makes the mother goddess Tiamat, past tense, and then basically uses her remains to create heaven and earth. There is uh, patricide, there's slavery, lots of blood. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, uh, humans in this story are created from the blood of Tiamat's partner, a defeated and betrayed rebel. And uh, the humans are created and consigned to slavery to these deities so that mm-hmm. the uh, so that the loser gods in this story, in this great battle, they don't have to be uh, the slaves. Like they were supposed to be the slaves. They were all supposed to be executed, but they like give up uh, this, uh, this collaborator of Tiamat and it's the blood of T, or it's this blood of this betrayed rebel that ends up being how the humans are created. So, right from the creation of man in this story, defeat and an inferiority are in the human genome, and uh, that matters to uh, the exiled Israelites and enslaved Israelites who will who will mm-hmm. write the creation story. Uh, anyway, because of this creation narrative this Babylonian creation narrative, all of that violence, 
Also, violence against women, I should name, because the creation of heaven and earth were coming at the expense of the brutal killing of a goddess that needs to be named. Uh, intrigue is also part of the story. Quest for power is a regular thing. Power over land, power over people. All of that is very normalized in the society these exiled persons are in. You know, it's actually, it's more than... Uh, it's more than normalized. These things are actually viewed as a, ah, gosh, fancy phrase. I literally just re- cosmic necessities. That is what these mm-hmm. are. These are the, these elements of the Babylonian creation story. These are cosmic necessities. So in this society, religion is empire and empire is religion. I, uh, I would like to, read a quote that says it better than I could, that distills it really well. This is from the book, uh, Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. It's by uh, Jonathan and Baron Sachs. Uh, This is a Jonathan Sachs quote. He says, Religion in the form of polytheism entered the world as the vindication of power. Not only was there no separation of church and state, religion was the transcendental justification of the state. Why was there hierarchy on earth? Because there was hierarchy in heaven. Just as the sun ruled the sky, so the pharaoh, king or emperor, ruled the land. When some oppressed others, the few ruled the many, and whole populations were turned into slaves. This was, so it was said, to defend the sacred order written into the fabric of reality itself. Without it, there would be chaos. Polytheism was the cosmological vindication of the hierarchical society. Its monumental buildings, the ziggurats of Babylon and the pyramids of Egypt, broad at the base, narrow at the top, were hierarchy's visible symbols. Religion was the robe of sanctity worn to mask the naked pursuit of power. Close quote. Again, that's Jonathan Sachs from the, uh, uh, from the book, not in God's name, confronting religious violence. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, uh, I, I use that quote to say that it was against this kind of background, this very background, that our creation story and really all of Abrahamic monotheism emerged. And uh, mm-hmm. further, it emerged as a sustained protest against these things. Our religion, our religion, as well as Islam, and Judaism, these are protest religions, basically. They are protesting violence. They are protesting empire, uh, enslavement, inequality, uh, blood, war-making, hierarchy, Mm -hmm. and just all manner of injustice. That is the story against which we are going to be reading the the Hebrew Bible uh, and the you know, today, the uh, story of the creation. So I would like us to read the creation through that lens because the creation story Mm -hmm. and much of Genesis, it writes against this Babylonian creation narrative. Uh, Karl Barth, he wrote that creation is the external reason for liberation. And I just love that he says that. Uh, He goes on to say that in order for liberation to be possible, You have to have creation the way the Bible tells us. Liberation Mm -hmm. is the inner reason for creation. Genesis is written with liberation in mind. The second born, like Abel, 
the barren mother like Sarah, the refugee father like Abraham. Like you'll see this all throughout, uh, well, especially Genesis 1 through 11, you'll see that. But all throughout uh, the Hebrew Bible, you are going to see regular themes of uh, God granting children to barren mothers, God being on the side of the refugee, God being on the side of not the firstborn, but the secondborn and even occasionally the lastborn. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot going on here that talks about the sustaining of, you know, as it were, the losers or the less than, the inferiors. Um, so, yeah, I think that's all I want to do to uh, kind of set the stage for the creation story. Is there anything else that you want to add to that, Derek? Yeah, I just wanted to highlight something that you said in case people missed it. It's very important that this was the national epic of Babylon and that this justified their hierarchy, that Marduk represents the king of Babylon and the humans represents the, represent the slaves in Babylon. And this was recited at the festivals of Babylon, the New Year festival, and it was integrated into their entire way of looking at the world and it justifies there and so all of these details you end up looking in Genesis many of them will be in a contrast to what you find in the Enuma Elish for example uh we get that stuff is very good that good and then it's very good in Genesis you see this repeated in Genesis whereas mm-hmm. in the Enuma Elish it's it's really neutral it's just the way it is right and so i think there's just an entire uh, contrast that happens and we'll get into some more of these contrasts But, um, like you said, we can't discount the experience of the exiled Israelites in Babylon and the celebrations around them. And what they created and preserved in contrast to that is is important, which is why it's important to understand texts on their own terms in in the historical context that created them. And so historical critical work is very important. It's not the only conversation that needs to happen. Right. But it is very important. Very good. Thank you for saying that. So um, anyway, speaking of contrast, uh, that's kind of the next place I wanted to go was uh, contrasting both these uh, the, Babylon- the Babylonian creation story and uh, the biblical creation story. Like there are clearly comparisons, um, you know, clearly parallels between the two. Uh, you know, we bo- they both start with a dark, formless void. Um, Mm -hmm. but like to just like start from the beginning in the, in in the Babylonian creation story, we got the creation of the world out of war and victory and the body of a a goddess at the hands of a, of a male warrior God. That's how Mm -hmm. we got the creation of uh, the world in the Enuma Elish. We, what we got in the biblical creation, we got the creation of the world through the word. There's, there's no violence here, like none at all. God speaks words, God creates, and nobody has to die. No blood, mm-hmm. no conflict. There is nothing going on in here that requires violence for creation. So that's one thing. Another thing, humans in the Babylonian narrative are created as slaves to the gods. Slavery is the order of creation in the Babylonian narrative. But now we have in the biblical narrative, the protest creation story, we got something totally different. In uh, verse 26, God says, out 
out of let us make humans in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, the fowl, the cattle, and every creeping thing on the earth. Close quote. But also, humans are to dress and keep the garden. Uh, to 15, uh, ver- chapter 2, verse 15. Humans are simultaneously descendants of divinity slash rulers, and they're also servants. Simultaneously royalty, mm-hmm. divinity, rulers, but also servants. Who does that remind you of, Derek? Well, I mean, it reminds me of the the way this gets constructed in Babylon and Egypt where it's only the Pharaoh mm-hmm. that truly is in the image of God yep, and everyone yep. else is is a, a servant. And it, it just is backwards from what, instead of, um, well, God shares with us honor and glory mm-hmm. and rest. Mm-hmm. And it's actually backwards in the Enuma Elish where humans were created to do all the work so the gods could rest. Right. I mean, that's that's not cool. No, it's so, not. It's not. So we have from the very beginning of the creation of humans a point where all humans are divine, all humans are mm-hmm. tasked with uh, ruling, and they're also tasked with serving the uh, serving the earth. Simultaneously, as rulers and servants, we are already seeing a type of uh, almost a type of Jesus set up from the creation. The point is, we got royalty performing service to the earth, and there's no slavery as social order written into uh, the biblical creation narrative. So then we got humans created from the blood of an executed and defeated God in the Babylonian story. In the creation story, they're created from watered earth and the breath of life. Again, no blood, no violence. Uh, You've talked about this idea of king as supreme ruler and divinely ordained, and I would say vital for cosmic order and human well-being. Like that's how the Pharaoh, the king, the emperor was viewed in uh, in those days. That's the that's what the hero Marduk was, and that's who the king is in Babylon. The king is basically uh, an idol incarnate, a uh, human statue. So that's basically like what we got in uh, the king. But in the creation story, there aren't any kings because there's no need for kings. Rule belongs to all humans, mm-hmm. and there's no hunting. There's no war making. There's no domination, there's no slavery, and you could probably even argue there's no patriarchy. Like, that doesn't exist here. Uh, The Mm -hmm. hierarchy among Mm -hmm. humans in this story, in this narrative so far, it's totally different from what we see in the Enuma Elish, and it's very anti-Babylonian. Back to that narrative, the uh, the king and Marduk, they have control over procreation and fertility of the earth and other stuff necessary for life on the earth. But in the creation narrative, the earth is almost completely self-sustaining. Like we, we got a, we got an irrigation system and plants and seeds Mm -hmm. that, you know, perpetuate and propagate without the need for humans or divine intervention. Like the way the Lord creates the earth, uh, things can almost go on entirely by themselves. They're, they're, they're used to make, like humans and uh, and you know the rest of the earth, they work in this kind of synergy, but like there is a stewardship uh, implied in here rather than one clearly serving the other and one being subject. So that is a whole new thing. We have kind of a 
uh, eco justice theme woven into the creation narrative. And, you know, one more thing interesting worth noting, there is no explicit instruction to use animals as a food source. In fact, we don't really see that until several chapters uh, later in Genesis. The way that things are structured in this particular story is like basically humans and animals can exist off of just the earth, the plants. Like there's no, like it's vegetarianism, veganism, whatever, just they're almost inscribed into the creation story, it seems. And uh, again, no Mm -hmm. hunting, no war making, no violence. That is like part that is inscribed into the creation. And also the notion of there being enough. That is one more thing. Uh, Everything that is required for the sustenance of life on earth is already present. There is enough for everybody. So like food security is a right inscribed into creation. So that's another, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of these. I just encourage you to go through the creation story and just see what themes you spot that are indeed uh, protest themes, protest narratives to the story that they were told, and perhaps mm-hmm. even uh, protest narratives that we can apply in our lives today. I, I could keep going, but if I do, I'm going to sound away, and I, I don't want to do that today. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, Derek, what do you what do you want to say about this, if anything? Yeah, well, I, I want to go through some some interesting things. So a similarity between Enuma Elish and Genesis one is um, that you have both you have create uh, creation out of pre-existing material. Mm-hmm. So there's this formlessness. There's this un. Uh, uh, unstructuredness in both cases and many protestants and catholics want to read back into genesis a creation out of nothing a create a creation ex nihilo Mm -hmm. and that's not actually what we have in genesis we have uh the earth being without shape and unfilled tohu vabohu in hebrew and that's uh that's what what we're creating out of, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we get, and you, we get this a little bit in the Abraham, the book of Abraham, is that uh, it's the organization of pre-existing material is really the biblical model of creation. Yeah. Not creation out of nothing. And I want to just name that in the first two verses of Genesis, we have both male and female representation, at least in the in the Hebrew text. So... In the uh, first verse, you've got Bereshit bara Elohim, that in the beginning God created, or some people translate, uh, in the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, or you could also translate as the sky and the land, uh, the earth was without form and void. And bleakness... Uh, I I think that's how Will Gaffney translated because she wants to not have darkness be, uh, be uh, something to be fixed. Right. So she translates it as bleakness in the interest of uh, being sensitive to how we uh, treat darkness. Yeah, how we treat darkness and how that leads to us uh, uh, supporting racism or interpreting. Uh, darkness as bad. And this and is another Will thing Gaffney. to note is, yeah, 
You said this is Will Gaffney? Right, Will Gaffney. All right, very good. Uh, So she's a womanist scholar of the Hebrew Bible, and in fact, I'm going to read her translation uh, of Genesis 1, 1 and 2. When beginning he, God, created the heavens and the earth, the earth was shapeless and formless, and bleakness covered the face of the deep, while the Spirit of God, she, fluttered over the face of the waters. So... One thing she's doing here is bringing out the fact that in Hebrew, verbs are gendered. In, uh, in Indo-European languages, you don't have to match the gender of the verb to the gender of the subject of the, of the sentence. But in Hebrew, you do. So when you have bara Elohim, that is a masculine verb in verse 1, God created. But then in verse 2, ruach Elohim, which is the breath of God or the wind of God, uh, that's feminine in gender. So we're able to play with gender in this way, and the verb that goes with the wind of God is merachefet, is a feminine verb here, a feminine participle, that the wind of God was fluttering over the um, over the face of the water. And I love what Alter does here in his footnote. He says... The verb attached to God's breath-wind spirit, ruach, elsewhere describes an eagle fluttering over its young, and so might have a connotation of parturition or nurture, as well as rapid back-and-forth movement. So here we have mothery language here. Okay. Of, uh, uh, here. So right here in the first two verses, we have both male and female uh, language describing God's creation. All right. And some Latter-day Saints will want to read back into this Heavenly Mother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, I'd rather just say that somehow this whole God thing is going to transcend the gender binary, and and it's a representation of all genders and a a complicated thing that you can't even contain in human language. It's very queer. So I I really love this uh, the fact that we've got this here in the text, and of course you get this later in the text um, where we have the creation in God's image. And let me finish Gaffney's translation. You already quoted verse twenty six, I think, but I'm going to read her translation. And God said, "Let us make humankind, Adam, in our image, according to our likeness." And let them rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the animals and the whole earth and every creeping creature that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's own image. In God's own image, God created them. Female and male, God created them. So I just love that um, all people of all genders, uh, female, male, everyone, is created in God's image. It's not the just the Pharaoh that's in God's image. It's not just the men who are in God's image, but all people of all genders are created in God's image. Now, some people are going to want to twist this in the interest of heteronormativity and say, well, you need both male and female, exactly one of each, to reconstitute the full image of God. And that's not what it's saying. It's just saying that everyone, male and female, is created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. Not that the image of God consists of being half male and half female, one of each, in this nice heteronormative pair. That's completely foreign to what's going here 
on, on going on in the text. So that's uh, um, something to be named. Uh, also, I just want to name that right there in the beginning of the Enuma Elish, the, 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 those words actually mean when on high in the Akkadian language, which is the language of Babylon. They, uh, that means it's also saying that uh, we've got this sort of temporal clause that's saying in the beginning uh, is, is the equivalent in the Genesis text. But, so, it's in, this, in the beginning uh, that the creation was formless in both texts. And you have right from the beginning, Apsu and Tiamat, male and female, mm-hmm. uh, were the... Uh, present at the beginning of the Enumalish uh, to start the creation. Mm-hmm. Although later, of course, it's Marduk that actually creates the world that we inhabit. Mm-hmm. And that um, there's some parallels with that because the way that Marduk creates uh, the, the heaven and the earth is um, by taking the dead body of Tiamat and slicing her in half and opening her up like a laptop and the bottom is the land, and then the uh, the top is the the vault of the sky. So we have this paralleled uh, in Genesis with the creation of the firmament, which is a um, a hammered out sheet of of something, a, a solid uh, thing that is is hammered out, really. Um, and essentially, the the word for the the deep uh, that that you have the bleakness over the face of the deep in verse 2 is to home, and that is etymologically connected with Tiamat. You just have the T feminine ending added to those consonants, and you get you get that. So there's some interesting connections, but notice that you don't have any of these gods. There's no other gods. There's no other gods named here. Mm-hmm. Not even the sun and the moon and these other things that are created, which Marduk creates in the Enuma Elish and puts them in the sky. Mm-hmm. They're not named as sun, moon, mm-hmm. and uh, or anything that could be confused as other gods. Mm-hmm. You have a... Um, now, I don't know if this is anachronistic, but I read this as monotheistic. Uh, and I think monotheism at the time of the Babylonian exile was very life-giving for the people. Uh, mm-hmm. And we'll have to talk about that some other time because I don't have time. But I think the idea that there's one God in control of the destiny of the Israelite people was actually helpful because it made sense out of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Because without that, the the logic would be, oh, wait, if there's multiple gods, well, the Babylonian gods must exist and they must be more powerful and we should assimilate to Babylon because they won. And that's what almost every other conquered people did, but the Israelites did not assimilate in part because they believed, well, you know what? Those Babylonian gods, they don't even exist. God is in control and God is... Uh, somehow punishing us or letting this happen, although that could be problematic if you if you uh, take that. Certainly. But my point is that whatever they did, it led to the survival of the Jewish identity and Judaism as a foundational narrative. And so this monotheism was life-giving to the ancient Israelites, mm-hmm. and we see this represented here in the text. Because you don't have then the uncertainty of which gods are going to win, like you do in in Homer, right? You have no idea which gods are going to win. Like, ironically, the god of war, Ares, lost the 
the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the um, uh, but yeah. So let's talk about um, yeah. Any other details in this that we should talk about? I was trying to think, man, um, <laughs> uh, and I, I I don't I don't know like details of the uh, of the of the uh, of the setting or what are we talking about. I think details in the text. Let me just pause and 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 go back to the proclamation on the family. Oh goodness! Before Derek gets to this, I just want to like point out that this is one of the headings in the "Come Follow Me" manual, and I couldn't help but just like glance at that and be like, "Why?" Like of all the things that we need to talk about in the creation narrative, like why is this one of the why is this one of the headings? And uh, you know, it it still doesn't say what most people are going to say it says. Uh, you know, in Sunday school, but you know, I, I do think this is an important thing to talk about since it does come up in the lesson. Yeah, and I don't want to replicate a lot of what I said, but maybe I should replicate something because we don't know when listeners started listening to me, right? Correct. So they might need to hear this again, or they might need to. But I just want to let people know that, and this can't be underestimated. This fact that I'm about to tell you is that it's only about 10 years ago that a large number of LGBT folks in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came out and decided to stay in the church. The pattern in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, even the early 2000s, there was only two options for LGBT saints. It was to remain closeted, um, marry a person of what people told you was the appropriate gender, Identify as what people told you was the appropriate gender and tell no one. Don't even tell your spouse. Mm-hmm. So one was to live in the closet. And we've still got people like that around yeah. that, that married in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Or what you could do is you could leave the church. And a lot of LGBT folks did because it was so inhospitable in the 70s. They were literally, and this isn't using the word literally figuratively. This is literally, <laughs> they were literally shocking us. Yeah to try to make us straight. Like that is how inhospitable it was. So there was no real way for people to come out and remain active members of the church. The only two choices you had were remaining closeted where you weren't seen or leaving the church and people didn't have to deal with you. And why is this important? Because my point is a lot of the questions that we need to ask didn't even arise until about 10 years ago when we had LGBTs coming out and staying in the church as faithful members. Mm. Like, this is new. Like, the proclamation is from 1995. That's before uh, this change, Mm -hmm. right? There was nothing really that the leaders needed to ask in 1995. They did not need to ask, well, what should our faithful gay members do? Which is why the proclamation does not address us in the second person and say, I know you, you are gay, this is what I want from you. It does not address us. It does not address what faithful LGBT members of the church should do. It talks about what people should not do, like Mm -hmm. no gay marriage and no gay sex, but it doesn't even answer the question. So I am flabbergasted why people want to make the proclamation on the family the foundation of what LGBT saints should do Mm -hmm. when that's not even what it was addressing. Mm -hmm. There is no way that they had that on their mind Mm -hmm. in 1995. There were very, very few... Uh, LGBT people that were out and wanted to be faithful saints at that time. And so why are we going back to this proclamation to answer questions that we are now actually asking? 
Um, and this gets back to the question that no homophobe in the church can answer for me. I have never heard an answer from any homophobe in the church that can answer this question. Ooh. And the question is, what year did same-gender marriage become prohibited in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Let me see this question again. What year did same-gender marriage become prohibited in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And the reason why this question is important is because any potential answer that they would say, there's a major flaw with it. For example, people could say, oh, well, um, it got prohibited in uh, 1995 with the proclamation on the family that says that marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, the flaw with that is that makes no sense because are, are we saying that, that same-gender marriage was permitted in the church up until 1995? That's not the case, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's no way that you can pick 1995 as the year. There's no way that you can pick 2015 as the year, which is mm-hmm. the year that um, the policy came out. Uh, it's the year that in the United States, same-gender marriage was legalized uh, throughout all 50 states. Well, that can't be it either for, for similar reasons. Um, but any year before 1995, this wasn't even a live question. It's not founded on revelation. You can't say, well, it must have been in the 1830s when we had the sealing power or maybe some year in the 1840s when we had the temple, right? It makes no sense to say that that year was the year that same-gender marriage became prohibited because that wasn't even a live question. It wasn't a subject of revelation. It wasn't of any substantive import to the people. It wasn't on their mind. You can't tell me that uh, same-gender marriage was was legal up until 1836 and, and, the, and, the, and some of our temple revelations here because— that wasn't even addressed by the text of the DNC sections mm-hmm. on um, on the temple. Mm-hmm. It wasn't addressed by our sections on the sealing power. I honestly think that if the sealing power had been revealed after same-gender marriage, it would have just been assumed to cover marriage in general. And now then people, now the homophobes are, have a real, real big problem. Because, well, then they're going to say, well, then we must push it back to 1830 and say, well, same-gender marriage was prohibited from the very beginning. Now, there's a major flaw with that, yep. and they really they really condemn themselves because what they're saying is, well, we never actually considered it. We just inherited it from the surrounding culture, which we did with racism and sexism and some other things, mm-hmm. too, in 1830. Mm-hmm. We just inherited it un- uncriticized. Uh, from the surrounding culture and from the surrounding interpretation of the Bible in 1830, and same-gender marriage was prohibited from the very beginning of the church in 1830, yet we have no revelation that even discusses this. And you know what? So many things that we inherited in 1830 were changed Mm -hmm. in in later revelation. Mm -hmm. Like in 1830, we didn't have Heavenly Mother. We didn't have um, our particular... We were basically Trinitarian loosely in 1830. We didn't have a lot of the, the substantive revelations that changed our view of the Godhead or of eternal progression or any of these other things that shocked people. We didn't have DNC 76, which shocked people when it came out. 
1830. There are so many things that we inherited in 1830 and were taught in the church until it got changed by Revelation. So when they say, well, it must have been prohibited since 1830, you've already lost because you're saying, yeah, we've never given gay people a fair shot. We've never given trans people a fair shot at fresh revelation that speaks directly to this issue. Uh, line upon line, when we're ready for the revelation, we get it. And what they're so my point is, no homophobe in the church can tell me what year that same gender marriage became prohibited. And my contention is, well, then it never was prohibited officially in any um, legitimate, canonized, uh, final way. And so there's a big problem that say, well, our doctrine is fixed and we can't change it. Well, first of all, we've changed doc. That's the whole point. We've changed almost every major and all minor doctrines have had some degree of shift since 1830. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that shift happened in the lifetime of Joseph Smith, of course. But my point is that no homophobe can answer this. Can you think of any possible year that that could work? Nah, don't ask me that question. I don't know. Yeah, there is no, there's, yeah, I can't think of any way that you can argue that same gender marriage became prohibited in this particular year and not have a major problem. Right. Anyway. I also want to name that uh, um, we've got multiple creation narratives in the church. Uh, there's, of course, the creation narratives of Genesis, but then these are also replicated in Abraham and Moses. And then we also have the temple narrative, mm -hmm. which is different. Um, I'm not going to go over the details, but if you look at the order of what gets created on which day, it's not at all the same in the temple versus what we have in Genesis. So just think about that. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk a little bit about Adam and Eve because this gets back to the proclamation. Okay. People will try to say, well, um, same gender marriage has been prohibited since Adam and Eve. And there's a big homophobic assumption there. And the assumption is that the Adam and Eve characters in this myth, it, it, this is a myth, right, mm -hmm. um, in terms of genre, mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they represent everybody? Like, literally, the word Adam means mankind right, or right, humankind. Right. I should be gender neutral on mm -hmm. that. Adam means humankind. Mm -hmm. Adama means the fertile soil. Mm -hmm. uh, and Adam is created out of that fertile soil. It's all of us. Adam is a placeholder that represents everyone. We should all see ourselves in Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. And Chava, which is Eve's name in Hebrew, it sounds a lot like the word for life, Chai in Hebrew. And so these are generic names that stand in for everyone. Mm -hmm. I, ironically, I think you'd have more of a case for the discrimination against LGBTs if we had a separate creation. Like if you had Adam and Eve... It created on day six, and then, and then you had Adam and Steve created on day seven. That I would have a problem with, mm -hmm. because that would lead to segregation. It would lead to say that we're somehow of a different nature because we were created differently. We were not created out of the same uh, flesh and bones as as the straight people. I actually think that would be worse to have a separate creation narrative for gay people. Mm. Like, and that's what they want to legitimize gayness? I mean, no, I'm already legitimized by the details of Adam and Eve 
in itself. Like I see myself in Adam and Eve. Love is love, right? Mm -hmm. It's not some different, radically different kind of thing. Um, I think that Adam and Eve is universal and expansive, or at least I see it. Now, some people might not find themselves represented, and that's fair if they don't see themselves. But I see myself represented, mm-hmm. and I need to go through some of these. Oh, I'm talking. Do you have any thoughts on this, <laughs> or should I just keep going? No, not immediately. Okay, so let's go through some of these um, details in Genesis 2, because when you look at the text in its historical context, it's not functioning the way people want it to. People want it to function as a polemic against same-gender love. And that's not on the table. That is not what what Adam, what the authors of Genesis 2 were responding to. It's not part of the historical context. Now, maybe if they had been writing it today, they would write it a little differently uh, to respond to the questions about, uh, that are occasioned by the existence of queer people. But that's not on their radar, and that's not what they're addressing, and that's not what they're condemning. What they're condemning is, it's actually more of a polemic against bestiality than it is against uh, same-gender love. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the narrative flow and the contrasts within the text itself, what does the text identify as important? If you answer that question, you will realize... Oh, that's another question that no homophobe in the church can answer. No homophobe in the church can show me from the details of this text why Adam and Eve wouldn't represent all humans. Like, show me from the Hebrew text why Adam and Eve couldn't represent queer couples. Like, and they can't because gender itself isn't a primary uh, contrast. It's not the legitim- uh, It's not the justification or the legitimacy for Adam's uh, pairing with Eve, mm-hmm. and you can see this based on what the text itself emphasizes. So basically, here's how the Genesis two narrative works: You've got all of the um, you have Adam mm-hmm. created, which I think is gender expansive and gender neutral. Uh, Adam, yeah. Um, we don't have gender yet, uh, so. The Lord God formed this Adam from the soil and breathed life into this creature, which is interesting because in contrast with the Enuma Elish, we don't have humans in general being uh, uh, created in God's image. Right. right? We have created out of the blood of a slain God, Mm -hmm. but we've got this interesting connection of earthliness and divinity where um, God imparts God's own breath to us, mm-hmm. um, which I think substantively dignifies humanity in a way that that uh, and queer people, right? Mm-hmm. Queer people are in the image of God. Queer people have the breath of life. Like you can't deny us, disinherit us, and dispossess us without denying that we are fully human and fully divine in in the sense that's appropriate to this context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so God created uh, this Adam out of the earth in Genesis 2 and then says it is not good for Adam to be alone. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know why all of these people in the church look at queer people and say, well, it's good for us to be alone. 
That's not what it says. Saying the quiet part out loud. It's not good. Like you have all this stuff that's good in uh, in chapter one of Genesis. It's a, a light vort, a, uh-huh. a, a theme word that's used to to unify the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, and then it's not good for this Adam to be alone, this human to be alone. Mm-hmm. So God says, I will make a an Azer Konegdo, a helper appropriate to him. Oh, that help that word helper, can I just say it's not necessarily an adjunct position in Hebrew. Like there's just some gender implications there I want to name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we don't want to minimize that particular position uh, you know, for the woman. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's a good thing to point out. This word Azer doesn't mean like a subordinate assist. Right. It means someone that comes to your aid. In fact, Azer is very often used of God mm-hmm. being the helper of Israel. Uh-huh. Someone who rushes in to defend them and to provide for them and and com- and uh, so that so this Azer is not a um uh uh, should not be taken in a sexist way of like, oh, this is you know, Adam is first, and then you've just got this like assistant. Right, That's not right. what this is. Okay. This is someone swooping in to rescue Adam from Adam's alone in this, mm-hmm. and that is the, the 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 point of this. And konegdo means corresponding to him, and you have to look at the narrative flow of the text to see what the correspondence is. A lot of people want to read into this some gender business. But the text tells you, by contrast, what the appropriateness is. I'm right. translating it as um, a helper appropriate to him. Okay. Now, what's not appropriate to him, it's the animals. Right. Because then what it says is, in verse 20, so, um, okay, so we've got all of this, this, this Adam being alone. Uh-huh. And God says, I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to create an Azer Konegdo, an, a helper appropriate to him. And then so God creates all of the animals and brings them to Adam. And it says very clearly in verse 20, for Adam, no Azer Konegdo, no companion appropriate to him was found. Mm-hmm. So this is more of a contrast with bestiality than it is with same gender love. Mm-hmm. It's saying, look, this dude, well, I shouldn't call him a dude, this creature, this earthling, right created out of the Adama, this this individual has no companion of their own kind. Uh, and that's the emphasis here. So, and you can see this later when Adam says in verse 23, celebrating the creation of Eve, he doesn't say, oh, you are the complementary of, of my opposite, or oh, you are the gender that is different from me. No, he does not say that. Let's look at what Genesis 23, 2, verse 23 says. Adam doesn't say, oh, you are the complementarity of my opposite, or oh, you are the gender that is different to me. He says, no, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What does that mean? You are the same. He doesn't talk about how different she is. He talks about how you are the same species. You are the same kind as I am in contrast to the other animals who were not the same kind and who were not uh, an Azer Konegdo, uh, uh, someone appropriate to him. Now, let's look at this. 
it's not about gender. It's like I really think that Adam and Eve here represent all of us. Like that's what their names mean. That's as the uh, figurative and legendary ancestors of all of us. They represent all of us. Um, we should all see ourselves in Adam and Eve. Like I read Adam and Eve and I see myself there. I don't have to change the, the genders of anything to, re- to see myself represented. And what this means is that um, I don't think you can use the details of this text against queer people the way that people want them to, right? Um, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, the contrast is is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which queer people, queer couples, queer um, families, we are the same species. We are absolutely justified by what the text uses as the justification for uh, the partnership between Adam and Eve. And and here's the real real kicker that no one, I think, before me has, has pointed out, is that it is not God who's the final authority on what the appropriate partner is. God, like, proposed all these animals and says, well, you can find one if you want. Um, it, he... Adam rejected all of these uh, things until he got the one that he wanted, right? So he was the final authority as to who, what was appropriate to him. And all queer people made in the image of Adam, of all genders, have the same exact authority to name who is appropriate to us, to reject what's been provided to us, even someone offered by God. We can reject all of those until we as the final authority as to who's appropriate to us, pick our partner. And that is queer. Right. And I'm not even reading anything into the text that's not there, <laughs> I don't right. think. Right? right? The text, it's amazing how the text justifies it. And now people are going to say, well, you're not like Adam and Eve. I mean, okay, dude, was your wife made from your rib? You don't you Ooh. don't get represented by the Ooh. details of the text either. Like mm-hmm. this, like if you have to say, well, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Well, what about like Adam and his rib? Where's your rib? Like trying to to fit this into the interest of heteronormativity is completely foreign to the text, and no one actually fits Adam and Eve literally. Mm-hmm. Like Adam and Eve didn't have parents. Like it's so ironic that verse twenty four says that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife. Adam didn't have a father and mother, mm-hmm. right? And Eve didn't have a father and mother. Like Adam and Eve were not born of heterosexuality, um, and neither was Jesus. And we talked about this at Christmas. So if you look at the text, it doesn't do what the homophobes want it to do. Right. And I'm just tired of people using the Adam and Eve narrative when it actually is way more queer friendly. I'm not saying it's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. It, there's going to be, you know, uh, people not represented in certain ways because that's not on the mind of the, the, the authors of the text. But what was not on the mind of the authors of the text was to dehumanize queer people. That's not their goal, and I think it's a foreign use of the text to make it do that. Mm-hmm. I've been talking a lot. Now I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts or reactions? <laughs> well, I'm just glad you pointed out the uh, the queerness of the creation story and also just the 
lack of necessity. Like you pointed out, I was about to do this as well. You pointed out the events leading up to Adam choosing Eve. And, you know, that's the other thing. Adam chose Eve and, uh, you know, not God chose Eve or God merely made, you know, Eve. And Mm -hmm. um, you said it yourself. We are the same. This, This whole thing is less about, a lot less about anatomical. Well, it's not about anatomical complementary at all complementarity at all it's all about like oh this is another human this is a person that can actually be co-equal with me like that is that is the point um that's the moment that adam actually becomes man like and like that's where man and woman like come from i think is when like we actually get eve coming into the picture and existing as a co-equal a partner to him. So that's really the only thing I wanted to point out was the the choice mm-hmm. of uh, Eve, uh, or rather Adam's choice of Eve, and then the fact that she was the only one that was co-equal of all the creatures that God presented uh, right. to Adam. So, right. I mean, you, you hammered it in there, man. You got it in, and you said it better than I could have, and, you know, we're at the hour mark, and I don't even know how much else you want to say today. Uh, so, you know, what? Well, what go ahead. Well, I've got more I want to say, maybe not too much more, but um, I want to name briefly, people should know about it, I don't have time to go through it, but Aristophanes' creation myth in Plato's symposium is actually pretty cool. It does have a separate origin for gay men and lesbians and straight people. There was basically three, um, it's a separate origin for all these people. So three different creation stories you said? Well, it's, it's a... It's a creation narrative, but there's three different origins for okay. the uh, within this same narrative. There's three origins for uh, queer people, uh, uh, gay, gay men, uh, lesbians, and uh, straight people. And so I think that's pretty cool of how it's how there's representation there. I'm I'm glad that I have the the creation narrative that we do. Oh, I need need to go back and talk about this be fruitful and multiply thing because <laughs> a lot of people miss something very interesting, uh, a very interesting parallel. So let's go back to Genesis one, and people will say in Genesis one twenty eight there's a command to be fruitful and multiply. However. It says that God blessed them and said. So this thing that is that he's saying isn't a commandment in the Hebrew text so much as it is a blessing of endowment, of endowing them with fertility. And this is part of God's creational act of granting them the power to be fruitful and multiply, not saying, oh, you're going to be punished if you don't. This isn't a commandment. There's no penalty given if you don't. It's not like the commandment given not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where there actually mm-hmm. says, don't do this. Um, eh, and of course, that has a penalty attached that in the day you eat of it, you will die. So this is not a commandment in the original narrative. And part of the evidence for that is if you go back, God says basically the same thing earlier in the text. Uh, on the fifth day, let's look at what it says in Genesis 1 verse 20. You have the water uh, swarming with living creatures and then birds flying in the air. So you're filling what you created on the third day. Um, or no, you're filling what you created uh 
on the on the second day, right? Uh, but it, what you're doing now is it says God, God created all these creatures in the sea and in the air. And then in verse 22, it says God blessed them, same verb, and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. This is part of the creation, uh, the, the finishing touches on the creation. This isn't a commandment to all these creatures to be fruitful and multiply in the sense that they do something transgressive if they don't. And I think a lot of people want to read this as a commandment, and I don't. If When I enumerate the commandments, if I ever get around to doing that, I'm not <laughs> going to put this as a commandment. It is not a commandment. Yes, it's, um, it, it's there, and it's phrased and it's translated as an imperative in English, but it is really just, uh, it's no more of a commandment than let there be light. That's a commandment, right? Hmm. It's part of the creational um, endowment of, of the completing and creating and filling and, and uh, forming uh, over time, uh, which, which God does, creates not all at once, but over, over time, over six days. And this is just part of the overtime, the creation, uh, finishing touches, he gives fertility to these creatures, including man, including the creatures of the sea and the air. And the fact that it's almost the ex exact same language used for both means that uh, it's not like, yeah, I just am tired of, of, of people demanding that we be fruitful and multiply or else we have transgressed. So that's not what the text is saying. Not everyone is able or willing to uh, reproduce. Um, and it's also a very narrow understanding of family, like chosen family and fruitfulness in other ways and flourishing in other ways counts as being fruitful and multiplying. I just think that there's a heteronormative way of reading the text that we don't have to do, and I just want to name that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's maybe we should stop pretty soon but uh you said pretty I, soon not even now you said pretty soon <laughs> yeah um yeah I, maybe we should stop pretty soon there's probably more i could say is there anything i'm missing i'm feeling like there's a bunch that i'm well missing. there there is a bunch that you're missing like there's a lot to go over in this narrative and we simply do not have the time to fully you know get into it like i i've spent entire classes on just chapters one and two of Genesis. Like we didn't even get into the sort like the source material for these stories and the contrast, mm -hmm. you know, between chapter one and two and just how they, you know, both contradict and complement each other and like the right. messiness of that part of the text, you know. But you know, we can't get into that today. <laughs> like Yeah, well let me just say one final okay, thing. Okay. Okay. Is that a lot of people are going to use this in the interest of condemning science, like what we know about anthropology or the history of languages or um, the creation and, and the flood and evolution, all this mess. And I think that is it is born of insecurity and faithlessness to try to stretch this into a genre that it's not. This is not a newspaper reporting of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is clear from the evidence both. Uh, archaeology, anthropology, basically every field, that Adam and Eve were not literal historical people. It, and it's a foreign reading of the text. Like, they are general, um, representing all of us. They're, they're mm -hmm. not actual people. So I think 
that people twisting the purpose of this text into like condemning science make, makes no sense uh, given given the text. So we um, the the whole thing about faith versus science is a larger conversation. But I just yep. wanted to name that right here is that I, I I don't think that there's any legitimate way to say that Adam and Eve were two literal historical people at some point. Um, you know, a couple thousand, you know, four thousand, six thousand years ago, like that—that that makes no sense right. given this context, and especially given the context of the contrast with the Babylonian and Egyptian narratives that are floating around them. This is created in reaction to them. It's created to to be a polemic against them. It's not created because they they had any actual evidence that Adam and Eve existed. Mm-hmm. So. That's kind of what I I probably should stop talking. I could talk about this for <laughs> about hours. To say, and this hours is why I don't bring, This is why I don't be bringing nothing else up with you, man. Like I just know we're just gonna keep talking, and we could, and I would love to, but like, uh-huh. yeah, we we had an hour and ten already at least. So right. let me just. Okay. Well, I guess I'll stop here for now, and there's gonna be more <laughs> next week. There's always more. We always got next week. So, but right. um, always next week. You know. In the event, though, I would really love to be able to, now that we have officially started reading the Bible, um, you know, particularly the the Hebrew Bible, I would love to be able to give people resources. I, I feel like, you know, now that we're back into a global book of scripture or one that's more ubiquitous among, you know, the global population, there's actually quite a few resources we can offer folks to be able to like learn about this stuff or mm-hmm, to provide mm-hmm. alternative readings of the text. You've already provided Will Gaffney's uh, translation of this uh, narrative um, of the creation story. I would also like to include, I, I, I highly recommend for beginners um, or, you know, anybody else who just wants to have a different translation of the Bible. I recommend the Harper Collins Study Bible. It's annotated and it's also in the uh, New Revised Standard Version translation of the Bible. I've really enjoyed being able to just read from different, well, a more contemporary translation, one that I can actually understand. Um, right. And the exactly. and the, even the general authorities have encouraged us that uh, we can read. And this is in the handbook too, I think. Like we can go mm-hmm. ahead and read from other translations, from newer translations of the scriptures, because you know that King James English that be that be messing with my head sometimes. So definitely encourage that. And mm-hmm. perhaps Derek, we could provide a list of other resources for folks as they as they read the scriptures and you know put them in the show notes, maybe. Yes, but of course you just prompted me to say another thing. Dang it! And it's this, this <laughs> thing about this. People talk about a help meet. Or a helpmate, which is not even what the KJV says. But putting those two words together is not what it's saying. It, the word meet is actually a preposition. It means appropriate. So it's a help meet for him, not a help meet for him. So it's a help, a helper, meet or appropriate for him. So uh people the king james causes people to create this this concept of a helpmeet or a helpmate and that's not actually what's going on in the text uh-huh. and that's why it's so important to look at contemporary translations of the text well, all right i'm just going to stop saying things now and uh Oops. do a rough transition into our end game stuff here so 
Okay. want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and BTB. Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. You can also find us on Facebook. So if you have not done so, please go to our Facebook page, search for Beyond the Block, and click like so that you can get uh, updated when we post stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what else? What else? I also just want to say a, a quick thank you for like to everyone who has offered encouraging words or affirming uh, statements during this past week of excitement for me personally. Um, you know, I've been a ball of nerves for the last five days. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I just want to say thanks to everybody who's shared the story, who's been, you know, supportive. And actually, I even want to thank uh, Deseret Book, who's been nothing but professional since this whole thing went down. So I just want to give them their credit where it's due while the rest of this story mm-hmm. unfolds. And again, thank you to everybody who's offered an, an encouraging or affirming word or, a, you know, a supporting a supporting word. So just thank you guys for that. Also want to uh, give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for uh, editing the transcripts that we put out. Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with uh, social media stuff. And, uh, of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines. Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. The outlines are also including the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from the same week. So that'll basically be your one-stop shop for all of our uh, episode outlines. Uh, You can find a link to the outlines in the uh, show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the transcripts. You can find those there as well. Is there mm-hmm. anything else that I'm forgetting to name, Derek? Well, I forgot to name the implications of um, the universal descent from Adam and Eve on the issues of race and ethnicity. Because if you have all of us being of one family, it really precludes any justification for racism. But we should talk about that more next week. That'll also be in my course. So, I mean, I'm glad you said it, but I'm also going to stop asking you if there's anything else that needs to be said. So, <laughs> on that note, thank you right. for joining right. us till we meet again next week. Okay, until we meet again next week. Bye-bye.